Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Horton, who just uh, has received her PhD from Boston College and is assistant editor at the Journal for Continental Philosophy of Religion. Uh, Dr. Horton, absolute pleasure to have you on today. Yes, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, We're talking today about your new book, The Promise of Friendship, Fidelity Within Finitude. Uh, Why this book? Well, this book uh, developed from my doctoral dissertation, so it uh, it was a book that had really been uh, in the works for a while. I actually chose my topic in my second year in grad school when I was frustrated with how little attention contemporary philosophers give to the topic of friendship. It seemed that when that philosophers would always be talking about eros in preference to friendship and we're completely neglecting this this other kind of relation that's actually something that is very important to people. You know, lots of people have friends. People who don't have friends almost always wish that they had friends. And this is something that has historically been of great importance to philosophers. And look at the place of prominence that Aristotle gives to philia. And of course, you know, one thing that I talk about is nephilia is not the exact same kind of relation that we're talking about when we say friendship today. But at the same time, it's not just a a different relationship. You know, there's something there that's important for philosophers to pick up on in talking about friendship today. And so I was thinking this is a topic that's really become very neglected. And it's, I mean, there's there's some more recent exceptions, such as Derrida's The Politics of Friendship. But overall, I was thinking this is just not something that's gotten enough attention from philosophers. And yet it's a topic that turns out to have a great deal to teach us about what it is to be human. You know, you mentioned the subtitle is Fidelity Within Finitude. And one of the big questions that this book is tackling is, okay, why is friendship good for us? Might it not be better if we were completely self-sufficient beings? And then one of the key things that I'm arguing is, well, if we were completely self-sufficient beings, then we're not human anymore. That our finitude means that we're not self-sufficient, but at the same time, it's, it's ridiculous to try to sum finitude up in terms of everything that we're not. We are the kind of beings that can be transformed through relationships with others. 
And that's that's the beauty of friendship. And I, even as I, you know, uh, is glancing through the the book comes out in November, you know, mm-hmm. um, so this kind of fun as a, a sneak peek, I was able to glance through. But it's not just that uh, if I if I'm reading you correctly, it's not just that this relationship can transform us. It's that it should transform us, that we should have these relationships that transform us. Yes. Um, that fidelity is what creates the self. That if if you're not bound to anyone, then you're, you're actually less yourself. That I talk about friends as translating the world for each other. That is, that friends are experiencing the world not as the other one does, never just as the other person does. You're, you're different people, but in light of the other's experience. And the, the whole idea of fidelity is that it's this binding commitment, that it's not just this sort of passing relationship where you might briefly come to, to see something differently and then you move on. Like that's, that's great. That's also something that's going to happen in, in the course of human life. It, but, but friendship goes deeper than that. It's this lifetime commitment and that very being bound in fidelity long term to another person, regardless of how you or the other person might change. I mean, that's not to say that the question of change is is a simple one. If if your friend becomes a serial killer, to take a really extreme example, <laughs> that's that's going to be a problem. Uh, or, or if you become a serial killer, that's that's going to be a problem for for your friend, or at least it should, because you know obviously serial killing is bad. <laughs> but the sort of a commitment where you don't know what's going to come of it—that's actually something that's creating you as a self. That it's forming you. It's becoming part of who you are in a way that shapes your future, and that even works backward to affect you know, how you look at your past. So it is something that's fundamentally transformative. And that kind of transformation is good because that's what brings you out of yourself and into the world. You might think I I should play it safe. I shouldn't let myself get committed to somebody when I I don't really know how it might change me or or how they're going to change. But but you say that you, you decide not to take that risk. And and you're really just shutting yourself off from other people and closing yourself off to that risk that's an essential aspect of living in the world and saying, I refuse to let my world be transformed. You're just locking yourself into this like, tiny, narrow world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say, I, I think that some people would actually be very pleased to be friends with a serial killer because, I mean, who wouldn't in our day and age want to be friends with a celebrity, right? I mean, at least <laughs> you could at least be a podcast guest, right? No, um, the, 
But uh, no, uh, point taken is that uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And the commitment really does transform us. I, you know, something that struck me from your title, and you've kind of touched on one, a lot of things, and a very important thing. So thank you. But when you say fidelity within finitude, and one of the things that popped into my mind was why within? Because it's a condition of existing within finitude that shapes the whole way that fidelity looks for us as human beings. That it's because of our finitude that we don't know where fidelity is going to lead us. But at the same time, that's what makes that's what makes human fidelity fidelity, that we're we're binding ourselves or we're being bound rather. It's it's not even something that you're necessarily even consciously doing. Like maybe you realize I would like to be lifelong friends with this person, but even in that case it's not something that you're controlling. And and it's also within finitude because there's the idea you're you're faithful to the friend even beyond death. You don't just forget about your friend the moment the friend dies, if if the friend is the one to to die first. And so there's there's that sort of infinity then within finitude, the the infinite commitment, and yet within the finitude of a life bounded by death and a life where you don't know what's going to come of this fidelity. And also because it's because we exist in finitude that we can be transformed by other people. And indeed, as you just mentioned, that we should be transformed by other people. So it's our existence within finitude that's constitutive of the way that fidelity does shape us and even create us and that it even must shape and create us. Uh, yeah, and let me, so let me follow up on that question because as you're talking about within finitude, uh, obviously we're talking about limits. What are the limits of the finitude you're talking about here? Are we talking about the limits of the relationship, the limits of the community, or are we talking about like the limits of the self? Like that I am finite and it's the faithfulness inside within me, or is it the faithfulness within like the community? Because I know you also reference Aristotle and the, and the political side of things. But are we talking more about finitude in that communal sense that uh, and kind of like uh, maybe shaped around us or uh, our finitude as ourselves, like, uh, like as individuals? Mm, it would refer... I think to to any of that uh, really to to the limits within which we as human beings exist, limits that constitute us as individuals, limits that also apply to the community and to life within community. That uh, essential to finitude, for instance, is that we exist within time. And none of us chose to exist, and we're all going to die at some point, and we're subject to change. And 
One, one really important thing that's going on here is actually a distinction between the finitude, between, between finitude and the finite, where here I'm drawing on Emmanuel Falk and Martin Heidegger, that were finite, you know, to be finite is like to not be infinite. There's all these things that were not. And then the idea is that that doesn't sum up human existence. Like, for instance, you can talk about a sonnet in terms of all the things that it's not, but at some point, if you really want to to talk about it appropriately, you need to start talking about what it is. Right. And just talking about, okay, we're finite, we're not infinite, we're not eternal, we're not changeless, that ends up giving a bit of the impression that human existence is something to be regretted. The whole, gee, wouldn't it be better if we were as God uh, idea. And, and then talking about finitude, that's talking about it in terms of, okay, what is human existence? It's to exist within time as changeable, as transformable. And that's actually what's suited to us. And it doesn't make sense to say, wouldn't it be better if, if we were gods? Because that's actually going to destroy what it is to be a human being. And it's good to be human beings. Okay, I give the analogy of... Okay, so God's perfectly self-sufficient. God doesn't need external sources of beauty, for instance. And yet, it would be absurd to look at the human experience of the beauty of a mountain range, or of the Sainte-Chapelle in Paris, or a great work of literature, or any other experience of beauty, and, and say, Gee, what a shame that we have these experiences. Wouldn't it be better if we didn't need them? And and then similarly too with with friendship. Mm. Yes. Uh, even as uh, you're talking here, there was one part that um, uh, some of my background my background's actually in philosophy of religion, so uh, mm -hmm. there's some theology in there as well. There's a lot here about the distinction between law and grace. And the way that grace is this uh, over an abundancy, if that makes sense. And so it, it's not that like the law is like things must be this way. Like there's a way that things should be. And then there's just things that are just like extra even beyond that. And that's what grace is in many ways. And that when you talk about that, these like God is beautiful in and of himself. But that the idea that like other beautiful things don't add anything is... Uh, is foolish, right? And so, um, is there any like as I talk about that those ideas of law and grace? Do you see any of the any connections there between those two things, between your what you're describing? Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, I, I even talk a, a bit about friendship as in terms of in terms of grace that it's it's given to us to exist with infinitude and. And to be transformed, that's, that's something that, that really should be thought of as, as a gift. 
because it, it can be very easy, especially if, I mean, I, I'm taking an approach that is very much influenced by Derrida, and yet one danger of, of that sort of influence is, is you can get caught up in thinking of all the ways in which things, you know, don't work, all the ways in which we can't be perfectly faithful. You know, there, there's this demand of infinite fidelity, and we can never live up to that, and friendship is always a risk, it's always a danger, and, and that's absolutely true, and yet also it's a gift, or, or indeed a grace, you know, in being called to friendship, that is an absolutely wonderful gift. And yes, there is the risk, because you don't know what's going to happen, ultimately, what's going to come of it. It is something that's dangerous to, to undertake, you know, throwing back to, to Kierkegaard, I say, you know, to be undertaken in fear and trembling, and yet also with gratitude for the gift, because this is an absolutely wonderful thing, and be the, the opportunity to take that risk is just... Incredible. I could, I could even say to to continue with the the more religious language and an incredible blessing. Yes, and it's interesting. Uh, I was going to ask you. It's fun that you brought up Kierkegaard because I remember uh, how important it was for me in my study to come across the concept of anxiety by uh, Kierkegaard, and where he's uh, he starts off by talking about Adam approaching original sin. Uh, the original sin, <laughs> not original sin as the concept, but like the original sin. And uh, he uses that as a case study to demonstrate that some knowledge can only be found through the commitment. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and, you know, and of course, Heidegger would have been very familiar with Kierkegaard. And, you know, as you're pulling, like, I can see the strands here of this, this idea of like, there's a certain... Um, there are certain barriers that can only be crossed through uh, through commitment, and that's that is transformational, even uh, at a knowledge level, which is not something that's uh, uh, I think prominent in our culture, right? Like we're we're, mm -hmm. we're very consumer driven. We're very like uh, we like to research and pick and choose, but in terms of uh, fully committing to something, that that's not something that we generally do as a culture. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm going to ask a, a terrible question. I'm just going to be honest, but I feel like, uh, at this point, our, our audience would want to hear it. I know this is an equivocal term and there are so many different definitions, so feel free to break some apart, but you obviously have one, uh, yeah, in mind. What is friendship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole book is really uh, wrestling with that question of saying it's not something that can be fully defined because it has to be lived. I mean, if, if we want an approximative definition, the one that I start with in the introduction is, okay, we're looking at some sort of long-term committed relationship I start off saying between two people, though without excluding the possibility that there can be friendships you know, with multiple people, all of whom are friends. And 
something that you're not born into in the same way that you're born into familial relations. I'll end up uh, problematizing, calling into questions the ideas of, of choice as it applies to friendship, but it's it's not something where you're just kind of born with the relationship that just exists and nothing can change the fact that there's this sort of this biological relationship is with familial relations. And it's it's not erotic that friendship, qua friendship, doesn't involve the desire to to be one flesh. Which, again, that's not to rule out the idea that family members can be friends or that lovers can be friends or that it's going to be easy to figure out what belongs to friendship and what to some other sort of love. But at the same time, there, there are these differences. So, so we're thinking some kind of long-term committed relationship that's not familial and not in and of itself familial and not in and of itself erotic. And then the book is talking about how, okay, but in the end, it's it's not really something that you can come up with this one precise exact definition for uh, because it is transformative and and it does have to be lived out and and we don't want to assume too quickly oh we we know what we're talking about uh would another way just to make sure i'm tracking with you uh would another way of saying it would be like it's it's a concrete process between two persons right mm-hmm. it, would that uh is that another way of saying it yeah I think you you could look at it that way, though um, I I want to clarify, you know, it's not a process where you're sure of where it's going to come out. Um, It's not a status bar leading up to 100%, mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of like a a journey where you you might have some idea of what's going on, but you, you don't have a complete map or exact plans of where you're going. I mean, you, you might have a partial map. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty well understood that there are some things that are just like not, not part of friendship. And there are some things that are, that are important in friendship. Like I talk about the idea of being there for the friend in trouble, rejoicing in the friend's joys. Mm-hmm. Those those are things that are going to be very important in friendship. Exactly how they look can be different depending on the, the particular people. But at the same time, indeed, it's it's something that's that's discovered in in the living of it and not something that you ever look at and like, oh yes, I understand exactly how this works. I can I can put it in a bottle or I can pin it to the, the corkboard and have it there just for observation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um can you talk about you you mentioned that you problematize choice in friendship. And that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. What are some of the problems with this idea of like, oh, well, friendship is just when you choose the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that grows out of my looking at friendship 
in light of Emmanuel Levinas's ethics, because Levinas says, I'm absolutely responsible for the other person who is not responsible for me. So it's an asymmetrical ethical relation, and I have that responsibility toward every other, and I don't get to pick and choose. And so that's where friendships may seem questionable, because isn't friendship the choice of one person that you've decided you're going to care about more than other people. And in one argument that you can make is, look, I don't have enough resources to devote to everyone. It makes sense that there would have to be some level of choice. And that's true as far as it goes, except it doesn't go far enough because it makes friendship out as I mean, it's, it's not really friendship then. It's a perhaps unfortunate practical necessity, but it's not the whole richness of friendship as something that's good in itself. And, and so then I'm looking at the question of, okay, how could you justify this preference for another person? Except then in looking more closely at what's going on, it's not really about preference. And it makes sense, really, that it wouldn't be, I am choosing, because I don't really know what's going on. I, I don't know <laughs> where it's all going. Yeah. Uh, I don't fully know who the other person is. I don't know how this relationship is ultimately going to transform me. So how could it be like all about my choice when I don't know enough about what's going on? And And another thing is... That friendship is actually fundamentally not about comparing the friend to other people. That talking about preference and choice makes it sound like I'm looking at an array of possible friends and the way I might look at a bunch of different brands of ketchup. And, and I'm like, I pick that one. And, and that's not fundamentally what's going on. Because friendship is about, I, I, say in the, I say in the book, it's not about others' insufficiency, but about the friend's sufficiency, meaning it's not that I'm looking at an array of people and I'm like, hmm, all those people are inadequate. That no, it's that the friend is someone that I'm drawn to as a friend. And yet, in practice, it might occur to me to compare the friend to other people. Like, oh, we have a similar sense of humor or, or, or all that sort of thing. That ultimately, again, because it's a commitment, it, it goes deeper than these shared characteristics. That fundamentally, it's not, oh, I'm picking someone because of these characteristics that they have, but... I'm, I find myself bound to this other person even beyond death, not as a matter of comparing them to other people, but as a matter of I am bound to this singular individual. And ultimately, to, to return to the, the 
the question with with living has ultimately you know friendship is a relation that should be directing me toward justice because I'm encountering the friend as the singular individual who is you know intrinsically valuable for himself or for herself and that's something that should ultimately be pointing me to the intrinsic value of all people. Like friendship is a relation that's not mediated by that political relation of how I'm going to calculate everybody's interests. And so it's something that that forces me to confront the limits of that kind of political calculation. Yeah, even as you're talking there, the, the idea that they translate the world for you, right? It means that we grow in wisdom, like this very concrete, like lived experience that comes from commitment. Um, and we grow in the knowledge of justice because we are growing in our knowledge of, of the other. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay. That, that always makes it, yeah, I like, I, I just making sure I'm tracking with you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to try and, and draw a few things here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you talk about, and I think you were kind of uh, dancing around the word philia again. You know, you're talking about this mm-hmm. bond, right? That that's uh, going on uh, with Aristotle, and in Aristotle, you talk about self sufficiency versus the political. But when Aristotle uses the term political, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I feel like uh, the word communal might be more useful, or mm-hmm. might limit some misunderstandings. Because one mm-hmm. of the things that, and I think this circles back to many of the things we've been talking about, when you talk about the political in today's climate, uh, even as you're talking about these calculations, right? Uh, our idea of the political in the Western world is built around uh, certain ideas of like the disinterested observer, rational agents that uh, avoids the very kind of knowledge that friendship gives. So when Aristotle, you're, you're mentioning politics with Aristotle, you're talking about, in many ways, the knowledge that comes with commitment. But when you're talking about the, uh, we're talking about politics as we understand today, we're talking about like uh, a very rational, very uh, transactional and agenda-driven uh, or uh, th- this idea of rational agents. Is that... Do, do those threads work together? Am I am I tracking? Yeah, I mean, when I when I was using the word political just now, I was thinking yeah. in the sense that that Levinas and Derrida yes. use it of, of yes. in contrast to ethics, where it is what you're describing the, the yes. disinterested observer trying to engage in in calculation, and I mean, yes, as as you say, uh, for for Aristotle. There, there is indeed more the sense of of community of people who are bound together in the polis, mm-hmm. and and that's actually getting at something very interesting as well because there's the sense of what exactly is the place of of friendship within the broader community. What is the place of a bond between two people within the broader community. And, you know, for Aristotle, it's something that is 
essential to the polis, that even grounds the polis. And yet there is you know, the possibility of the threat to it, of what if the friend ends up taking precedence in a way that's overall harmful. And that's a concern that you see you know, recurring in, in a number of discussions of friendship. And, and it's true that ultimately, you know, that's not a danger that can be completely eliminated. I was just talking about friendship as something that should ultimately be pointing us toward true justice, because it's the encounter with the singular individual who is inherently significant precisely as the singular individual that he or she is, and that that reminds me of the limits to any of those efforts at calculation. And and, and yet there there is the danger that there, there's the possibility of of conflicts between what's good for different people. Um, there, there's the possibility of needing to, to make a choice. And, and one thing, that was why Montaigne questioned the idea of whether you could be friends with more than one person, actually, saying if they're both in need, which one do you go to? And, and ultimately, I end up saying... You know, okay, that that is a real question, but trying to to limit the number of friends that you can have, you know, that's that's itself a calculation and attempt at eliminating danger. So, you know, there there are these risks, but the only way to avoid them would be to say, okay, let's have no binding commitments between people, and and then you don't have any kind of community at all. It is just politics in the sense that Derrida and Levinas talk about, in the sense that you were just talking about now. So if we say, okay, let's let's eliminate this danger, let's just have these purely rational calculations for weighing different people's interests, and then then there's no community at all, no relation to no no real genuine relation to other people. Yeah, and uh even as you're talking about this, um I, this might be a strange place for my mind to go, but I think of like probably half of the villains uh, in literature are, uh, and this is where friendship points towards true justice. Half the villains in literature are people who deem that other people's sacrifices are, are worthwhile. So when we talk about how friendship can be o brought over the community in a harmful way, we know like that's true, right? Like you can't choose your friend over like everyone. Um, on the other hand, there comes a point where if you start disembodying other people, if you do not have friendships, if you do not have these concrete commitments, then you start playing numbers and you start acting like a god, even though you are not. Uh, mm -hmm. and, I mean, and that's uh, without actually getting into like real life politics, I, I, there are definitely politicians who treat people like numbers. And we start to understand that there is a lack of virtue in that and a lack of justice in that as well. And that's where friendship, true friendship, can be um, uh, a tool to guide us towards true justice. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly, yeah, and uh, everything you were saying there is is a really good way of putting it. And it's it's like the, the tyrant in, in Plato's Republic who won't listen he he won't listen to anyone else. He's just being pulled apart by all of his desires, by his whims. He he's just following whatever he wants, and because of that he he's not even able to want anything coherent. It's just the whims of the moment with with no restraint on him. And and if you look at, at actual tyrants in history, you see how how they, they really are very much like Plato's tyrant. If you look at, uh, for instance, uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, the, the, the Romanian dictator from the, the time of the Soviet Union, you know, I've read some about him, and he was really an absolutely pathetic person who was wrapped up in this constant fear for his personal safety. And, of course, somebody who did not value the lives of other people. And if you read about him, it's like, this is Plato's tyrant. You know, the person who hasn't let himself be transformed by other people. And so what's left isn't, you know, the fully actualized self. But but just this sort of very pathetic assortment of concerns for for safety, the the pursuit of unrestrained desire that's ultimately destructive, of of course to other people, but to to yourself as well. And you kind of talked about with the you've mentioned self actualization there, um, which of course you mentioned negatively. in uh but at, at the end of the book or not the yeah, end excuse me but as you you start to shift in the book you start talking about how fidelity is the grounds and you've talked about this quite a bit how fidelity transforms us can you talk about what that process is like what does it mean that fidelity um creates the self mhm yeah it means you know there is now something that is not just constraining, but even shaping my desires. It's no longer just up to me. The Even the sphere of things that I want is now being driven by concern for regard for somebody else, that I'm being shaped by someone else's perspective on things, by someone else's needs and desires. And it really is very much like like writing, where if you're going to write anything, you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to uh, throw down a, a whole bunch of words with, with no shape or structure. I mean, sure, that, that might be part of some kind of brainstorming process, some sort of initial draft. 
but there, there does have to be some kind of structure. And if you're just like, I'm just uh, typing a whole bunch of words, it's it's never going to be shaped into anything. No, why would I want it to be shaped into anything? That's this unnecessary constraint imposed on the beautiful process of banging out word after word. It's like, no, you're, you're not going to come up with anything that, that makes any sense. It's, it's not even going to be comprehensible. And if you're just throwing out all kinds all constraints, are you even sure that those are words? Like I keep using the word constraints, but it's I mean that's that's really an overly negative sort of way of looking at it because it's looking at the whole not side. As if you're talking about I mean, yes, if you're writing a sonnet or a novel, there are constraints. But those are, that's also what creates it as what it is. It's a sort of direction, a sort of being given direction. Even without knowing what's going to come of it, you start writing a sonnet, you don't know the full final form that it's going to take. Um, a half a line that you're convinced is brilliant and is absolutely going to go into the final product might end up being changed. But it's being created within this framework that's like, this is a sonnet. And so, so you enter into friendship, you're bound. Uh, on the one hand, there are now certain restrictions on you, certain obligations. But those are the restrictions and obligations that are ultimately going to to make you who you are. Like hopefully, ultimately, a, a less selfish person, for instance. Or the, the friend, the friendship, the friend will be somebody that you might turn to for advice, for instance, but it, it even goes deeper than that, that now the whole world for you is a world in which you have this bond to this other person. And that's something that's ultimately going to to shape really everything about you, even if you're not consciously thinking of it at any given moment. Like you, friends with such and such other person, is a fundamentally different person than you not friends with that person. There's this whole array of experiences, of responsibilities, of really of, of this gift that you you would not otherwise have have been. And if if it's really that that commitment to somebody else pointing you towards seeing the, the singularity of, of every person, then that's something that's shaping you for the better. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as you say here, you know, you're talking about constraints as a negative term. The, I think the positive term you talk about in here is grounds, right? Mm -hmm. to, to use your, um, so it's the, it's the ground for the self. Uh, mm -hmm. To take your argument about uh, writing without form uh, to its absurd conclusion, 
I mean, if you really wanted to write without form, you wouldn't use paragraphs. You wouldn't use sentences. You wouldn't use words. You wouldn't use letters. Uh, and then it's and not it, writing anymore. It's nothing, right? Like, it, it, like, and that's where it's instead of being this negative thing, like words and sentences and uh, paragraphs, letters. These are not constraints. These are the grounds for communication. They make things. Po- they make communication possible. No one would actually look at that and say that's constraining. That's what. That's the condition for what makes it possible. And so you're in the same way where when you're talking about this, uh, as I understand it. What we think of as constraints is because we are dissatisfied that we're not infinite. But mm-hmm. if we recognize yes. and we become okay with being finite with our finitude, what we recognize is that our friendship is the grounds for being who we are. Exactly. And it's the distinction that I talk about then between the destructive madness or or the creative madness, that on the one side you have the destructive madness of the the Cartesian ego that's standing apart from the world. Like in the second meditation where Descartes is looking out at the square and he's like, all I see are cats and coats, but I judge that they are men. You know, separate from the world, trying to to know and judge without oneself being known and judged and interpreted, and and that way does lie a, a destructive madness, the the ultimate separation from indeed from one's grounds, from everything that's going to make you who you are. And then on the other hand, the the creative madness of you you find yourself committed to another person, to a specific person, without knowing what's going to come of it. And there is that risk and danger. Yeah. But that's that's the whole thing that that even gives you the possibility of being any sort of coherent self at all. So I'm going to ask one of those questions I think that sometimes uh, philosophers just hate. As you've worked through this, uh, what what are some practical things that you have found for your own friendships and for friendship that it's like, this has changed how you've approached things? Yeah, that that is. If that's too personal, that's that's okay too. (laughs) I I mean, I think, I think in in the course of writing this, I I have gained a a deeper sense of friendship as commitment, and it's it's kind of interesting because I I talk about I have a whole chapter dealing with Proust's In Search of Lost Time and. The, the main character's thoughts on friendship, which involve a lot of friendship as a distraction to the artist, and I end up talking about actually friendship itself is is an art, and I talk about writing as an act of friendship, and there were certainly times in, in writing it, that in, in the course of the writing, that it did feel like, like, you know, this is just taking so much time. I've got some some real sympathy with with the Christian narrator and and yet 
you know, friendship has to to be something that you do keep devoting time to. I guess you you're not always equally available for for everything in, in the same way at at all times, but but it, it really does have to be something that you take the time for because in the end, I mean, even the the very act of artistic creation, the the solitude of the artist is still a solitude that's shaped by that relation to others. The Proust's narrator has quite a lot to say about the, the solitude of the artist. And and I'm certainly not saying that like, no, you need to be talking to somebody else like the, the whole time you're writing that 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 doesn't work, but it's also always shaped by other people, and and I think I came out of it with ended with this deeper appreciation of friendship as commitment and where it's actually important that you that you don't fully know where it's going to go yeah and uh and you we've talked about this at length here and i've really appreciated uh i've appreciated one thank you this has been awesome talking about this but um that we don't do it because of that because it won't work then but recognizing that when we uh, are working on friendship, we are also working on ourselves. Yes. Yes. And it's, I mean, that, that, is, that is something that you can certainly be, be aware of, but uh, indeed it's, it's not something that it's like, okay, I know how I want myself to tone out, so I'm going to do this. It's sort of letting go of that attempt at controlling who you are, that that who you are is shaped by others, is even grounded in that sort of relation. And I mean, yeah, honestly, that's not an idea that I necessarily automatically like. I don't necessarily (laughs) automatically like the idea of finitude as a positive thing and existing within limits as being, okay, this is who we are as human beings and that's good. And this this has been a work that has you know, reminded me of that, uh, obliged me to uh, not forget that. Uh, that's that's really brought that to, to the fore for me in, in a way that it would not have been if I hadn't written this book. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. All I could think of is it would be a great main character in like a farce or a parody would be someone who, um, and some people do talk like this. It's like, all right, I want to be this certain person. And in order to be like this, you know, to be the well-rounded man, I need friends. Will you be my friend so I can be a well-rounded man? You know, like, you're like look at that. And it's like, uh, obviously you've misunderstood. Like when you're pursuing friendship, you're pursuing the friendship. It will act upon you. But you don't mm-hmm. get that control, and that's that's part of being finite. 
Um, yeah, and that's that's actually a bit of what's going on in uh, in search of lost time with the character of uh, Robert de Saint Lou, who really wants to be friends with the narrator because he has this great ideal of friendship as important, and so he's <laughs> like, "We are friends. Our friendship is important, and this is a great friendship." And he's deeply caught up in this abstract concept of the friendship, and and the narrator himself has a tendency to to see friendship that way, which is why he ends up critiquing friendship, and and I end up drawing on you know, the the novel more broadly to talk about you know writing itself as an act of friendship, you know, to language. There's the the fed effort for fidelity. Um, I've I've been using writing as an analogy quite a lot, and that's because it's it's really more than than just an analogy. That writing is you know an act of friendship to the readers, even to the the language or the form that you're working within that's shaping what you're doing, and and friendship. With another you know, individual person is part of you know, the the writing of one's life, and it's very clear then it's not a writing that you're just in charge of. Not that the other person is just in charge of it either. Not that other people can like, interpret you and construct whatever narrative about you that they like, but that it's it's a it's a living it gets back to you know this is why we can't just define friendship because it has to be lived out like you you can give a definition of a sonnet but that's not the same thing as reading one or writing one first off thank you for coming on today uh secondly besides buying your book when it comes out in november which people should what is one thing you would leave for our audience to kind of contemplate or think about uh, for the next uh, week after listening to this? I think it would be the idea that, okay, friendship isn't something that you can ever perfectly talk about or define, and that's something that testifies to the very greatness of what friendship is, and that it is a risk, but it's one that we should rejoice in, that it's it's not something that we should want to be totally in control of, but we should rejoice that we're not, because that's what makes it better than anything that we could just completely control. Friendship is a risk that we should rejoice in, is a wonderful way to summarize today. Dr. Horton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. 